1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we'll begin down in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are in subjection to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And you can be seated. This little section of 1 Corinthians 15 is very, very weighty. Um, there is a lot packed into this, to this little bit. I was trying to find an illustration for how to pack so much stuff into such a small little thing, and here's what I came up with. If you took a tablespoon of the material that the sun is made out of, that tablespoon would weigh five pounds. If you took a tablespoon of what a neutron star is made out of, it would be a hundred million tons or the same equivalent as Mount Everest in a tablespoon. This is like the neutron star level of theology packed into these few verses. Um, we touched on just a few of them in verses 20 through 24 briefly last week when we were talking about Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, um, but we'll look at it more deeply. At, there, there's just so much to talk about here. Um, at the same time, I have to tell you that in terms of views on eschatology, this is probably one of the most influential passages uh, in my thinking of future events in the Bible. Um, one commentator even said those who adhere to an amillennial position will see in 1 Corinthians 15 the basic outline of their eschatological viewpoint. And so we have all these different views on, on end times, whatever, um, what are we waiting for? What does the future hold? What comes next? That sort of thing. And this passage deals squarely with those realities in very plain ways. There's really no prophetic imagery here. There's no apocalyptic literature we kind of have to wade through. It's just a straightforward presentation of what is to come. And we'll get that to that actually more next week than this week. So let me just begin here with a general observation, and, and we'll start walking through this a little bit. And, and the general observation is one that you guys have, have heard me say over and over again, but, it, but it's true here in this passage as much as any, and that is that the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very center of all of history. From all of eternity past to all of eternity future, everything boils down to what happened on the cross and what happened three days later. This is the focus of everything that God has done and everything that God will do. We read here in verse 21 that as in Adam all die, so too all in, in Christ all shall be made alive. And so what we understand from that is that from the very opening pages of the Bible, 
Way back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis chapter 3, God was setting the stage for everything that was to come in Jesus and what Jesus was going to do. And then we have at the very end of this little section in verse 28, talking about all things being subjected to him. Then the son will himself also be subjected to him, talking about the father who put all things in subjection to Christ that God may be all in all. And so it goes all the way back from Adam all the way to what we call the new heavens and the new earth. And all of this revolves around the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Everything we read in the Old Testament, everything we read in the New Testament, it all revolves around the glorious atonement of Christ. And it spans all of history. Everything is anchored to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so here's the, here's the big takeaway for us this morning as we look through, um, through this section. This is going to be a very theological section, not a ton of practical application. I've got a, a really important practical application at the end that I think will help us. But, but this is just who Christ is and how Christ reigns and why is it that he reigns. But here's the big takeaway that Christ rules and Christ will conquer because he rose from the grave. Christ rules and Christ will conquer because he rose from the grave. Because God is the power of life and death and resurrection, Christ rules over all things. Last week we looked at basically six problems if if someone were to deny the resurrection. This week is actually just sort of the, the flip side of this in where Paul tells us basically five things that we have since Christ rose from the dead. So the first thing we have is we have truth. We have truth. Number one, we have truth. Jesus' resurrection is a fact. It's a fact of history. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus died. That's a historical fact. Jesus rose three days later. That's a historical fact. This is not made up. This is not some sort of fancy um, or fantasy or some sort of alternate reality that's going on. As much as Jesus was dead, dead, he is now alive, alive. He lives forevermore. Um, do you guys know who Chuck Colson is? Yeah, the apologist guy. He he was involved in the Watergate scandal, and I'm not exactly sure how. I, I think he ended up going to prison for a little while. But this is what he said in regards to the historicity of the resurrection. He said, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and the Watergate scandal proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if that was not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're, tw- you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Impossible. I think that's a pretty, pretty amazing summary. There's just no way that, it's, that it is a lie. 
Jesus rose from the dead. We don't believe that he's some sort of a, a weird zombie. I don't know if you are on social media. You should probably get off. I should probably get off of social media. But on, on Easter, there's all these things that, you know, oh, you guys worship a zombie or whatever. No, we don't worship a zombie. We don't worship this sort of undead, mindless corpse walking around. No, we believe that Jesus had the same life after his resurrection that he had before his resurrection, that he is truly alive in the fullest sense. There have been people even now who have been technically medically dead for some small period of time. They're not zombies. They are truly alive. And we need to wrap our mind around the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. So because Jesus rose, we have the truth. We proclaim the truth. That's what we hold on to. The second thing, Jesus' resurrection means that there will be more resurrections. There will be more resurrections. Verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So I mentioned last week that the first fruits in the Old Testament was an offering that you gave to God. It was part of the first part of your harvest. If you if you farmed grain, you, you brought the first sheaf of grain to the temple and, and you gave it as an offering. If you had a vineyard, you brought the first little bit of wine. If you had a sheep, you brought some of the wool and you gave it to the priests and so on. And the idea again was that because you, because, because God had supplied this little bit at the beginning, you would give it back to God in the hopeful expectation that he would return more for you. It was a, it was an offering that you gave. And it might not happen right away, but it would come. And that's, Paul says, is what the, the, the true thing that the first fruits pointed to was Jesus and his resurrection. That Jesus is the basis of all other resurrections. He's not the first one to rise from the dead chronologically, but it is because of his resurrection that all people will rise from the dead. And, and actually, it's pretty cool. We get a little taste of this in Matthew 27. Turn over there for just a minute. Kind of an interesting portion of the gospel account. This is often a portion of scripture that we just sort of read right over, but it's, but it's pretty fascinating. In Matthew 27, verses 51 and 54, we see even here this almost little taste of the first fruits of, of resurrection. So Jesus has has just died, and then verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Did you see what happened there? There's resurrection. It's almost like Jesus' resurrection can't but help raise other people from the dead. Now, we don't know anything more about this account than, than what is written right here. We might want a little bit more information, but we really don't have anything. Um, it seems like they either rose when he died or they rose when he rose, but they didn't go into the city until after he rose again. So you say, well, what happened to them? 
The answer is we have no idea what happened to them. We don't know if they died a natural death again, only to, to raise again someday. We don't know if that's the case. Some people actually think, based on a little bit of the grammar in there, that they were raised into their own glorified bodies and they ascended with Jesus into heaven. But the, the account in Acts and, and Luke don't have that information, so, so we don't know. We, we really have no other information than this. But what we know is that Jesus' resurrection is so powerful, it's almost like others can't help but rise from the dead along with him. And when Jesus returns, we too will be raised. Our bodies will be raised from the dead to be like his glorious body. So back in 1 Corinthians 15, that's the idea of the first fruits. Jesus' resurrection guarantees a massive res- resurrection of all humanity at the end of the age. Third thing that we have because Jesus rose from the dead is that Jesus' resurrection reverses Adam's curse. Jesus' resurrection reverses Adam's curse. Verse 22. Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In the opening pages of the Bible, we have what what sounds like this great thing, but it turns out to be this huge tragedy. We've got our, our main guy, who we think is the hero, Adam. He's in charge of the garden, lush, lavish, gold is everywhere. They walk with God. It's just this amazing thing. It's like that that tri- tropical island paradise like you dream about in the middle of January when it's still like negative degrees here and like ice and snow all over the place. That That's the garden. Well, it turns out Adam isn't our hero. He had one job. Don't eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what's he do? He eats the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He had one job and he failed. And because of that, we're plunged into sin. The reality is, of course, we would all fail. We would all do the same thing that Adam did. People often talk about free will. Well, aside from Jesus, Adam and Eve are the only ones who had anything remotely approximating free will. All the rest of us inherit Adam's sinful nature, and our will is no longer free. Our will is actually bound up in sin. Adam is what scholars often call our federal head. He represents all of humanity, and what he did affects all of us. The reason that we die is because Adam sinned and death flowed out of his sin. And so our wills are actually in bondage to sin, and the penalty is death until Christ redeems a person. Our first Adam, our first father, excuse me, Adam, failed us. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam's sin brings tragedy to the human race. It brings death and sin and suffering. Have you guys ever seen, I don't know, like on YouTube, those really elaborate domino setups? Have you guys ever watched some of those, like thousands and thousands of of dominoes and you you tip one over and it just goes and it's just it's just elaborate pretty amazing to watch well that's kind of like adam's sin you'd knock the first one over and it just starts slowly affecting all of humanity it goes and it goes and it goes when one by one we all die 
The Bible is filled with genealogies, and they all have this refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, over and over and over, thousands, ten thousands, millions, billions of people, we all die in Adam. But imagine you're watching one of those YouTube videos, and they zoom out a little bit, and halfway through the domino thing, it passes through the halfway point, and one guy stands right back up. And you're like, well, that's kind of weird. Like, how did he get back up? And maybe a couple other pop up with him. You're like, what kind of weird witchcraft is this? And then the, but the dominoes keep going. They're, they're still falling. They're still falling until it gets right to the end. And just as the last one falls, they all rise. And they all stand right back up. And they're all immediately divided. On one side, you've got those that are cast into eternity of hell. The other hand, you've got those who are glorified. That's the picture that we have here. Adam's sin is like that domino effect. It goes down, it affects everyone, but it's the resurrection in the middle that secures the resurrection of all. And it's what we believe based on his resurrection that matters where we go. Everyone is going to be raised. Believers and unbelievers alike will be raised from the dead. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says that there is coming a day where every knee will bow and every single tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone, whether they worship him or not, will confess and will stand before the Lord Jesus in judgment. Revelation 21, which we'll look at more next week, talks about the dead who are right now in death and Hades, which is hell, we'll call it. Death and Hades gives us gives up its dead just so the people are resurrected again, only to be thrown back into the lake of fire forever and ever. Everyone will be raised, but only those who are in Christ, who are believers, Christians, will be glorified in the new heaven and the new earth with Jesus. You ever kind of wonder about, well, what would have happened if Adam just didn't sin? I mean, that'd be kind of interesting, right? We'd be living on earth right now. We'd, we'd probably know Adam. We'd get to meet him and our great, 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 great grandparents and, and so on and so forth all the way back. I mean, if Adam hadn't sinned, if he had obeyed, he and Eve would have had kids and, and populated the earth and history would go on and, and it's in the garden. Wouldn't that be better than what we have now? You know what the answer to that is? No. No. It's not better. See, here's the beautiful truth. Whatever it is that we have lost in Adam, we have gained infinitely more in Christ Jesus. Infinitely more in Christ Jesus. The sin and the suffering and death that Adam has brought is nothing to be compared to the glory that we will experience because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we will experience it forever and ever with Jesus. When you look at the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 1 and 2, you think, man, that garden is great. It's a paradise. But then you look to the opposite end of your Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, and it is just over-the-top breathtaking. It is indescribable is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. The new garden of eternal life in the new heaven and the new earth is infinitely better than anything Adam lost for us in the old. And the reason that it's better is because Jesus has secured it through his resurrection from the dead.
People die because of Adam's sin, but we will all be made alive, truly alive, because of his resurrection, the resurrection of Christ. All right, number four. Jesus' resurrection secures the victory of the gospel. It secures the victory of the gospel, verses 23 through 27. But each in his own order, talking about the resurrection. Christ, the firstfruits, so he's the first. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, talking about the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. All right, so this is where the passage gets into some eschatology. We're going to expand on that more next week, but here's the gist of what Paul is getting at. That Jesus has been raised from the dead and he has ascended into heaven. His ascension is important because his ascension means that he now reigns and rules over all of creation, over absolutely all of it. And his ascension going up is like when somebody becomes king. And so he has sat down on his throne over all of the universe. And then Paul gives us a little bit of a quick timeline of of basically what's to come. In verse 23, he says, Christ is raised. That happened 2,000 years ago. Then when he comes again, his people are raised. And then Paul says, it's the end. Once Jesus comes again, it's, it's the new heavens and the new earth. That's what I believe that the future holds. So we're here until Jesus comes back. And when Jesus comes back, everyone else is resurrected and the new heavens and the new earth begin. But Paul answers a couple of questions here. How long will Christ reign? How long is he going to be in heaven? I think that's kind of what we all want to know. How long is he going to be up there? He doesn't answer with a timeline, but he does answer with some things that need to happen. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So first of all, he reigns until he destroys every rule, every authority, and every power. And so usually when the Bible is talking about rules and powers and authorities, that sort of thing, it's talking about spiritual realities. And oftentimes evil spiritual realities, not always, but often. And so it seems that though Jesus is going to be in heaven, reigning and ruling until every spiritual authority and power is defeated. How long is that? Answer, I have no idea. It's been 2,000 years so far. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be another 20 minutes. We have no idea. Then he says it again in a different way. Look at verse 25. He says, for he must reign. That's what he's doing right now. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so he says it almost the same way. He must reign until all of his enemies have been put under his feet. Now, here's an interesting thing about this. I think he tells us how Jesus is going to conquer his enemies. What does it mean to put all of his enemies under his feet? Well, we do have these accounts of these ancient kings who, when they would go and they would capture another nation or whatever, they would literally put the other king on the ground and they would step on the head or the neck of the other king to show their conquering 
over this king. They would literally put their feet on top of that, that defeated king. It could mean that. But what's interesting is when we see throughout the Bible God putting things under his feet, it is almost always for the purpose of worship. So let me give you some, some interesting passages to consider. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read these. First Chronicles 28, verse 2. Then King David rose to his feet and he said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for the building. Something's resting under God's feet in the tabernacle. You know what it is? It's the Ark of the Covenant. It's the place of worship is what's under God's feet. Psalm 99 verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalm 132 verse 7. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. And the footstool of God is the place of adoration and worship. Listen to what Psalm 110 verse 1 says about Jesus. It's a messianic psalm. It says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a what? A footstool. You know it. And that's what he quotes right here. Until I make your enemies. I think what he's saying, your worshipers. Christ conquers through conversion. He makes his enemies his worshipers. The gospel is going to spread into the world more and more and more. I think most of Christ's enemies will be defeated and dispatched into hell. But the focus of the Bible is that Christ reigns and Christ rules and Christ conquers, making his enemies actually his worshipers. And you say, well, is is this happening? The answer is 100% yes. There are more Christians now than there have ever been, ever There's also more persecution now than there ever has been. The persecution, ironically, usually has an effect that the gospel keeps going and more people keep believing. It's like it's like Satan's trying to stop the gospel. And the more he tries to stop it, the more the gospel spreads and more the people believe in Jesus. And you see this all through the book of Acts. There's persecution. And so the the people in the church, they are scattered. And when they're scattered, you know what they do wherever they go? They preach the gospel. And you know what happens when they preach the gospel? People believe. You know why people believe? Because Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. This is what happens. I mean, just, just again, think about this right now. We are literally on the other side of the planet from where our Messiah was crucified. And we're all here and we could drive in 20 minutes and we could hit 25 other churches who believe in the same gospel we do, lifting their same voices, opening the same word to the same Lord. The gospel is spreading. Why is Jesus conquering? Because he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. Why is there more persecution, though? Doesn't it often feel like things are getting worse? Well, I think there's more persecution because it's like wind resistance in the car. The faster you go, the more pushback you get. The more the gospel spreads into all the world, the more the forces of Satan don't like it. And so they push back harder and harder and harder. But the kingdom grows and it grows despite opposition and it keeps growing until one day Jesus comes back and he consummates it all. 
and all of his enemies are destroyed, either by his wrath or they are converted by his grace. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the very last enemy that Jesus defeats at his coming, is death. Jesus comes, he destroys all his enemies, glorifies all his saints, and there's no more death when he comes again. Death is the greatest enemy because death has never, ever been defeated. There have only been two people in history who have not died. Even Jesus died. There's Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and there's Elijah. And that's it. Billions and billions and billions of people have been defeated by death. And unless Jesus returns soon, billions more will be defeated by death. You and I and everyone we know will follow along the same refrain in the Old Testament. And he died, and he died, and he died. And then Jesus will come again. And I think no one says this better than a guy named Andy Minio. He's got a song called Death Has Died. You guys heard the song Death Has Died? Let me read you some of the lyrics. I think this is one of those powerful lyrics about the return of Christ. He's a rapper. I'm not going to rap it. I'm just going to say it. But bear with me. He says, one day my God is going to crack the sky. He's going to bottle up every tear that we ever cried. Bring truth to every lie. Justice for every crime. All our shame will be gone and we'll never have to hide. No more broken hearts and no more broken homes. No more locking doors. No more cops patrolling. No abusive words or abusive touches. And no more cancerous cells that will take our loved ones. No more hungry kids. No more natural disaster. No child will ever have to ask where his dad is. No funerals where we all wear black and death will be dead and we'll lock the casket. That's what happens when Jesus comes back. Death has died. This is why Paul calls this the blessed hope. This is why Peter says to set your hope fully on that day. When Jesus returns, it's the day when all things are made right and death is done. There's no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more sadness. Paul goes on about this a little later on in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at down at verse 50. He puts it a different way. He says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, transformed. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, that's when we're glorified, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where 
is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's awesome. There is coming a day where death is gone and not everyone's going to sleep. Every believer who is alive at the coming of Christ will be changed, will be transformed. We will have glorious bodies. That generation won't see death. They'll simply be transformed. The angel's trumpet will announce Christ's coming and he'll come. The dead will be raised. The alive will be transformed and eternity breaks in. And it will come to pass then at Christ's return that death is swallowed up from victory. It'll have no more sting. We won't be afraid of it anymore. Where does all that come from? It comes from Jesus. How did he achieve it? It's through his resurrection. Philippians 3 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The same exact power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that he reigns over all things and he rules over all things. Right now, it's that power that will raise us up and will glorify us too. Number five. The resurrection is what brings eternal glory to God. The resurrection brings eternal glory to God. Verses 27 and 28. Stick with the pronouns here because there's a lot going on. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, the father, is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him, the son. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, the father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And what Paul is touching on are some very deep inner workings of the Trinity in the grand scheme of all of history. This is specifically about the relationship between the Father and the Son. It was always the Father's plan to send the Son. And during this time, the Son has been given all authority. That's what we talk about at the end of Matthew chapter 28. That all things have been subjected to Jesus. He has been given all authority. There's only one exception. And that's the Father. The Father is never in subjection to Jesus. Verse 27 says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection under him. It's a very technical way of saying it. But the Father has given all things to Jesus. Jesus rules over it all except the Father. And Paul says, Once all things are in ultimate submission to Jesus, then Jesus turns around and he gives it all back to the Father. He subjects it all back to him so that the Father is all in all. God gives all authority to Jesus. Once all is accomplished, Jesus turns around and gives it all back to the Father. The Father and the Son, they worked in perfect, sovereign harmony to bring all of history to its full conclusion. I told you there's an application. 
Here's the application. We look around at the world and it looks crazy. Whether it's news or politics, the church, the world, whatever, it feels absolutely out of control and we can get down and we can get depressed and frustrated because the world isn't going the way that we want it. Can I tell you something? The world is going in the exact direction that the Father and the Son have it going. It's on their trajectory. And they will conquer over all things. All things will ultimately be subjected to Christ because Christ rose from the dead. And one day we will see the culmination. We will see the fulfillment of that. And once we do, Christ will return. And once all are glorified, it will all be given back to the Father. The little leaven of the gospel is expanding in the loaf of the world. The little boulder in the book of Daniel that toppled over the statues of the kingdom, it will one day fill the whole world. Because our, our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. We have hope and we have joy because God will be all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this marvelous truth that you and the Son and the Spirit are sovereign over all of history. Father, encourage our hearts with these truths. And may we proclaim the gospel boldly, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.